welcome to History Zine. The music you heard there was written by Richard Wagner and was Die Valkyrie Fantasy. You'll hear bits of that interspersed throughout the show. Lots of goodies in store for you this time. We've got linguistic history trivia bits, we've got podcast reviews, and of course we've got the War of the Spanish Succession. We're in 1707 this year, but that's later on in the show. You'll find I'm going to tone it down a little as far as the music goes. I had a complaint from a chap called Paul who suggested that maybe maybe the music and my voice shouldn't really be battling as much. So, yeah, I shall reduce the volume and cut back a little on the music. I'm going to exhort you again to go over to historyshopper.com or historyshopper.co.uk and have a look at some of the history-themed birthday cards I've put on there. I think many of you will enjoy them and possibly be quite amused. Go over there, point them out to friends, loved ones who might want to buy you a card. That's at historyshopper.com I also want to mention a group called the Battlefields Trust. You'll find them at www.battlefieldstrust.com The mission of the Battlefields Trust is to try and protect the UK battlefields against motorways, housing developments, etc. And they also look to try and improve the presentation and interpretation of UK battlefields. They're putting on an event that will be of particular interest to the people who listen to this podcast. There's going to be a Marlborough Study Day on March the 13th at the Assembly House in Norwich. This will begin in about half past one in the afternoon and tickets for the event are £15. The two main speakers are James Faulkner and Richard Holmes, both people who've written books on Marlborough and the War of the Spanish Succession. Should be a great day, tickets are £15. Part of the proceeds from that ticket will go to the charity Help for Heroes. Tickets are available from Anne Marie Hayek at 20 Rowington Road, Norwich, NR1 3RR. Make your cheques payable to Battlefields Trust. My guess is that as long as there are some left, you can probably buy tickets on the day. I don't know that for sure, so I would ring the Assembly House myself if I were you, just to check that is the case. Their phone number is 01603-626-402, or you'll be able to find them at the web address www.assemblyhousenorwich.co.uk. I'll be there. James Faulkner and Richard Holmes have both agreed to do an interview for History Zine, so hopefully... We'll hear that in the future, if all goes well. And I hope to see some of you there too. And lastly, a special plea on behalf of myself. I've been out of work since October now, so if any of you here have any opportunities, I live in Cambridge in the UK, or I'm willing to work remotely, so I can do things such as I can produce good quality copy, or I can do webby stuff. If you hear of any opportunities, please let me know at jim at historyzine.com. Dot com. And now, on to the reviews. We have two podcasts for you this time, and the first of these is Stuff You Missed in History Class. Now, Stuff You Missed in History Class is a light, entertaining, fun little podcast, which is part of the How Stuff Works conglomeration of interesting things. It features two bright and chirpy female presenters, Katie Lambert and Sarah Dowdy 
who seem genuinely engaged with their subjects. It's produced twice a week, and many of the subjects are well chosen to appeal to a wide spectrum of people. It's good, isn't it? How can you not like this podcast? The formula is perfect. These people really know how to put a podcast together and how to engage with their audience. And yet, and yet, somehow I don't feel absolutely engaged. Somehow it doesn't excite me. The podcast rolls down into my feed and I'm kind of pleased to see it there. I don't think I'll be too disappointed if it weren't. I've been trying to pin down what it is that I want that I just don't get from this podcast and I'm finding it elusive. My immediate thought is that this podcast lacks substance and true enough the episodes are quite short and self-contained. My favourite podcasts are all vast sprawling monsters which take many many shows to tell their story. Podcasts like Napoleon 101, 12 Byzantine Rulers, or Dan Carlin's coverage of the Punic Wars. Maybe that's the key. This podcast is more of a light snack, and I'm looking for a three-course meal. That said, I am glad that this podcast exists. They do manage to squeeze quite a bit of information into the podcast, and often remind me of subjects that I would like to study further, such as Madame de Maintenon and Georgina, Duchess of Devonshire. There was a recent episode which did intrigue me very much when they told the story of the person that the story Bluebeard is based upon. And I think this is where their real strength lies. Looking back through the many, many subjects they've covered, I find it's a very strange mix indeed. They veer from the French Revolution to the kidnapping of Patty Hearst. And these smaller subjects are probably their real forte. This is a short podcast covering a subject in just one show, and so they can't hope to tackle the big stories, such as, say, how did the British East India Company change the world? I'll see a title such as that, and get myself all excited and simply drooling with anticipation. However, the running time on this episode is 13 minutes and 47 seconds. There's not a chance they can do anything but scratch the surface in that sort of time. So the more focused look at a smaller story, such as the Bluebeard one, is definitely preferable for this format. In conclusion, a big thumbs up for the style, delivery and format of the show, but a thumbs down for the bland, superficial coverage of the larger topics. The next podcast I want to review is actually a lecture series. There's a course at the University of California in Los Angeles, that's UCLA, known as History 174C British India. As with so many courses at UCLA, they are podcasting the lectures and making them available to the wider public, i.e. you and me. These lectures cover the period between about 1700 and 1947, when Britain left, or depending on how you interpret things, was kicked out of India, and this, I feel, is a fascinating and incredibly useful area of study. Empires are, or always have been, by their very nature, exploitative. But, as we look to the future, I think we'll see a very different type of empire emerging, based upon mutual cooperation. There have been several very large empires throughout history, 
There are the Romans, the Macedonians, the Moors, the Mughal and Habsburg empires, the Chinese, and, of course, the British. All of these have lessons to teach us. If we're to try to put together modern federations, such as the European Union, we must learn what is exploitation and what is cooperation. We can build trains, grand buildings and set up large and impressive civil service structures, but unless we allow trading upon equal terms, then we're still marching down the path of exploitation. This is just one of the many topics touched upon in this course. The lecturer, Vinay Lal, is obviously very involved with his subjects and delivers every lecture with fervour and passion. I'm learning a lot from these lectures, but must admit to also feeling a little battered. They are delivered almost as if they are the homily being read out by a fire and brimstone preacher. I want to listen and I want to engage, but I feel more and more weary as he returns time and time again with another attack on the stupidity and sheer wrong-headedness of the British rulers. All this may be true, but the vehemence is more than a little off-putting, and occasionally, I think, it throws things out of perspective. For example, when Vinay Lal tells us how much Indian trade shrunk during the time of the British Empire, I'm inclined to believe him, but he talks of percentages in world trade, rather than talking in absolute numbers. This was during the Industrial Revolution, when manufacturing in Europe accelerated at a massive rate, and so their trading increased dramatically. There were new inventions in Europe, manufacturing increased by an unprecedented amount, and huge numbers of ships were built to move these new mass-manufactured goods around the planet. Of course other nations' share of the world trade would decrease, as the share of Europe increases. This is more a result of the Industrial Revolution than any trading measures introduced by the British. It's a small point, but I think if he's going to use such figures as part of his argument, then he should explain those figures in perspective. I'm still sticking with this podcast. It teaches me much that is useful and interesting, but I do feel there are some strong biases at work, certainly in the lectures, and I would hope the written materials in the course bring a little more balance. I would recommend these lectures as a useful insight into the kind of mistakes empires make, but I would also recommend that, as with any information source, you cross-reference it with others. You'll find the recorded lectures under webcasts at the UCLA Office of Instructional Development. Definitely recommended, but with obvious caveats. Welcome to the History Zine Linguistic History Trivia Bit. Inspired by the UCLA British India podcasts, I've chosen a theme of India for our word origins this time. The first one, I just want to mention quickly, was also pointed out in the British India podcasts, and that word was Avatar. 
Most of you will have seen James Cameron's fine new film, Avatar, with all those blue people. Well, Avatar, it seems, comes from a Sanskrit word. It means incarnation. But that word is not really what I want to look at. What I want to talk about here is the word thug. Thug is one of the more fascinating words we've explored on here. It is, in keeping with the theme this time, a word which has come to us from India. And as you may have guessed, it does refer to some very unpleasant people indeed. You'll see an interesting portrayal of them in Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom, worshipping Kali and being generally terrible. Although as far as I can tell, they didn't indulge in the practice of ripping people's hearts out with their bare hands. The thugs would join a caravan in small groups, befriend the people and win their trust. All had their assigned tasks and specialities, and all were well practised at making themselves agreeable to their travelling companions. More of them would join later, but admit no connection to the ones already there. This would continue until their numbers equalled or exceeded the travellers. At a pre-arranged signal on the journey, all would grab someone and strangle them, so wiping out everyone in the caravan. Then they would help themselves to the dead travellers' possessions. This way of life was one which was handed down from father to son, and these attacks were considered such a problem that the British government set up the Thuggy and Echoity Department to try and deal with this menace. Their task was far from easy. The thugs left no one alive. They committed their crimes far from home and got rid of their plunder quickly. They maintained absolute secrecy, with even their womenfolk not knowing of their activities. And worst of all, the relatives of the victims were reluctant to press charges or help with investigations into their deaths. Despite all of these obstacles, the thuggy menace was almost completely wiped out in a concerted campaign over many years, in which the thuggy were infiltrated, hunted and brought to justice. Thousands were hanged, imprisoned or deported, thanks to the efforts of William Henry Slayman, who became superintendent of the Thuggy and Dakota Department in 1835. And finally on this subject, I want to read you a little from a book written in 1839 called Confessions of a Thug by Meadows Taylor. Taub, said he. Wonderful, I could have sworn that they both looked at me but I am growing old and foolish. Well, Saib, as I have said, I gazed and gazed at them, so that I wonder even now they saw nothing extraordinary in it, and did not remark it. But no, the old man continued a relation of some treaties the Nagpur Raja was forming with the English, and was blaming him for entering into any league with them against his brethren. When my father called out, Tumbaco Lao, bring tobacco, it was the signal. Quicker than thought, the thug had thrown his handkerchief round the neck of the old man, another one round that of the sun, and in an instant they were on their backs, struggling in the agonies of death. Not a sound escaped them, but an indistinct gurgling in their throats. And as the Batotes quitted their fatal hold, others who had been waiting for the purpose took up the bodies and bore them away to the already prepared grave now for the rest 
cried my father in a low tone. Some of you rush on the servants. See that no noise is made. The bullock driver and others can be dealt with easily. Some of the men ran to the place the kayak had chosen and surrounded the unsuspecting cart driver and the other servants who were cooking under a tree. I saw and heard a scuffle, but they also were all dead ere they could cry out. Chilling stuff indeed. Finally, I wish to talk of a term that many of you will be familiar with. That was a singer named Flory Ford, and the word we're going to look at is blighty. This is the word we don't hear much these days in the UK, except when we encounter Americans doing mock English accents. Usually in such performances, the words good old blighty are crowbarred in there somewhere. We know this term to refer to Britain, but why, what does it mean, and where on earth did it come from? Well, you know the theme for the linguistic history trivia bit this time, so you've probably guessed that this word originates in India. It's from a Hindustani word, bilati, which means foreign. Many of the things which the British brought to India would be referred to as a foreign thing, such as bilati bangan, foreign aubergine, or as we might refer to it, a tomato. So you can probably see from that how it could change its meaning. From being foreign to British. If if someone points to something, referring to this as Bilati or that as Bilati, and all the things you point to are British, then of course you're going to assume Bilati means British. Many of the well-known World War I poets use the term dear old Blighty when expressing the common soldier's desire to return home. And one of the ways of getting home was incurring what became known as a blighty wound. This was a wound serious enough that you would need to rest and recuperate away from the trenches, but not bad enough to kill you or maim you too badly to function at all. Here's the music hall singer, Vesta Tilly, singing, I'm glad to have a bit of a blighty one. I say the me in my little In the 40s and 50s, there was a magazine by the name of Blighty. Then the word just seemed to fade away. Well, so I thought. A Google search I did the other day reveals there's a TV channel out there called Blighty, which seems to have thrown a bunch of stuff together, which has something or other to do with Britain. So it seems the word, 
much changed from its original meaning, it's still alive and kicking. And now it's time for the War of the Spanish Succession. This is a European war fought between 1701 to 1714 and it's ostensibly about who gets to claim the Spanish throne, which has become vacant. Now, there are two claimants. There is the Archduke Charles and Charles is the Austrian claimant and then there's Philip. Philip is the French claimant. Charles is backed by... England, the Netherlands, and Austria, or as I'll usually refer to them, the Empire. It's the Habsburg Empire, the Holy Roman Empire. It's Austria, quite a few of the Germanic states, and some of the territories in northern Italy. On the other side, supporting Philip, the French claimant to the Spanish throne, is, of course, France. France has some allies, some allies in Spain itself and in Bavaria, but mostly she's fighting alone. I wouldn't feel too sorry for her, though. France is an enormous territory with vast resources and a fine, powerful fighting machine. Now, I said it was ostensibly about the Spanish throne, but in actuality, it's more about the balance of power in Europe. France is very powerful. France is expanding quite rapidly. Spain is no longer powerful and has left something of a power vacuum there, which France wants to grab and Austria wants to grab. The Dutch are very interested in this because they're right on the doorstep of France and where's France going to expand next? It could be northwards into the Netherlands. The Austrians are quite interested in where France is going to expand next because they're just off to the east of France. The English, or the British as they will be after 1707, are, are worried about their trade. If France gets too much power in Europe, then they can block some of the British trade going through the Channel and round to the Mediterranean or further on to the east. So there we have it, the War of the Spanish Succession. We've just arrived at the year 1707. Let's see what this year has in store for us. 1706 was a year of great success for the Allies. 1707 was to be a different creature altogether. The Duke of Marlborough had great plans for this year. He was hoping to bring pressure to bear upon France from Flanders and to also squeeze it from the south by besieging and capturing the great seaport of Toulon. A fine notion, but it seemed the Empire had other ideas, and Toulon 
proved a tough nut to crack. Before we embark upon 1707, we must cast a wary eye to the north. Charles XII of Sweden has won many victories against the Russians, against King Augustus of Poland and the Elector of Saxony. Sweden is quickly accumulating an empire, and with a victorious Swedish army now established in Saxony, the European powers will have been much agitated as to whether he would move south through the empire or go east toward Russia. The Duke of Marlborough felt it necessary to visit Charles XII in his camp to try and ascertain, and if possible, influence his next move. It's difficult to tell whether this meeting was a success. Charles XII did go east and was eventually beaten in 1709 at Pull Tower. Voltaire, in his history of Charles XII, suggests that Marlborough weighed up the Swedish king and discerned that there was no doubt about it. Charles XII's aim was east to depose the Russian Tsar. Maybe this is the case, maybe not. The Duke of Marlborough returned to his army in the Low Countries to be met with the news that the Allied army in Spain had been soundly beaten at Almanza. So it all started with a difference of opinion. The Allies could muster around 30,000 men in Spain that year, and Galway wished to combine all these forces, march upon Madrid, and attempt to force a decisive battle with the French forces in Spain along the way. Charles III, however, wished to disperse the troops into garrisons in Valencia and Catalonia. The final decision was a compromise between the two, with half the troops being dispersed into garrisons and the other half allocated to Galway. This left Galway seeking a battle against the considerably larger French army led by the Duke of Berwick. The result, when they met, was, of course, disastrous for the Allies. The Duke of Berwick was gathering a significant army, and more reinforcements were on the way. The Allies didn't know exactly how many men Berwick could call upon, but they knew about the reinforcements. This boost to the French army had come about due to a rather unfortunate deal struck between the Empire and France. It had been agreed that all the French soldiers trapped in the fortresses in northern Italy could all return home. This removed a minor irritation for the Empire, but instantly added 20,000 French troops to the armies in Flanders, Germany and Spain. Galway, after the compromise solution had been worked out, had only 15,000 troops. He wasn't sure how many Berwick had, but new reinforcements were on their way, and so resolved to attack. Berwick knew he outnumbered Galway, so he too was resolved to battle, and at Almanza, in northern Spain, the two armies met. The Duke of Berwick had actually received his reinforcements, and those extra 8,000 men swelled his numbers to 25,400 French and Spanish. Galway and Das Minas faced Berwick with only 15,000 English, Dutch, Portuguese and Huguenot soldiers. Galway had been convinced that the French reinforcements had not yet arrived, as he'd heard that the Duke of Orléans, who was accompanying the reinforcements, had not yet arrived. And this information was correct. The Duke 
had not arrived, but the soldiers had gone on ahead, and were now facing Galway on the battlefield, standing shoulder to shoulder with their comrades. The two armies lined up, in much the same array as armies have done throughout the ages, with the foot soldiers in the centre and the cavalry on each wing. Being very short of cavalry, though, the Allies tried to bolster their left wing by mixing in English foot soldiers between the horses, much as Marlborough had done on the battlefield at Blenheim. The battle began at about three in the afternoon, and the Allied left and centre held up well, but unfortunately the Portuguese cavalry didn't fare so well. Many reports say they turned and ran without striking a blow. I was sceptical about this, and cast around looking for more sources. Many of my sources were less than complimentary about the Portuguese at Almanza. So I asked the military history writer James Faulkner, who's written many fine books on battles of the wars at the Spanish succession, although not one on Almanza just yet, if he could point me towards any useful sources. He emailed me back almost straight away, and there was still nothing really supporting the Portuguese. The British ambassador to Portugal wrote that the right wing gave way upon the first shock of the enemy. A royal dragoon wrote that the Portuguese did not engage, but turned tail. And Charles III said, Our cavalry, and particularly the Portuguese, gave way without waiting for any charge, abandoning all alone on the plain our infantry. I also contacted Antonio L. Rodriguez, and he tells me that the Portuguese cavalry did engage and were beaten back. He feels the Portuguese cavalry were made scapegoats for the failings of Galway. This is quite likely, but I haven't seen a lot of evidence for that at the moment. Then again, all that evidence I pointed out earlier was from people who were not actually at Almanza that day. Their commando, the Marquis das Minas, certainly did fight very bravely that day. He was still on the battlefield late in the day, still fighting, as was his mistress, who died fighting at his side. Whatever happened that day, whether they fled immediately or were driven off the battlefield, the loss of that right wing was fatal to the hopes of the Allies. They were already outnumbered at the start of the battle, were now in a hopeless position with their right flank completely exposed. Snipefell, Das Minas and Galway, with some cavalry, 1,500 infantry and six guns, managed to cut their way out through the surrounding throng and retreated to Tortosa. It was, however, a disastrous defeat for the Allies. This defeat, together with the propaganda which depicted the heretic English and Dutch come to desecrate the Catholic churches of Spain, pushed victory in Spain a long way away from the Allies. The war in Spain dragged on for some years, but this was the beginning of the end for the Allies on the Spanish peninsula. There's a contemporary ballad which gives a fascinating insight into the English view of the Battle of Almanza. Fortunately for you, I don't know the tune and therefore won't attempt to sing it, but I shall read it out as if it were a poem. Full twenty miles we marched that day, without one drop of water, till we poor souls were almost spent before the bloody slaughter. Brave Galloway, our general, cried, Fight on while you may. Fight on, brave-hearted Englishman, you're one to five this day. 
the Dutch fell on with sword in hand, and that was their desire. Thirty-five squadrons of Portuguese they ran and ne'er gave fire. The Duke of Berwick, as I have been told, he gave it out in orders, that if the army should be broke, to give the English quarters. Be kind unto my countrymen, for that is my desire. With the Portuguese do what you please, for they will soon retire. You'll notice in this song, it refers to Berwick as an Englishman. As I mentioned in a previous episode, the Duke of Berwick is quite closely related to the Duke of Marlborough. Marlborough is actually John Churchill, and he had a sister called Arabella Churchill. Arabella had an affair with James, who became King James II of England, and James Fitzjames, also known as the Duke of Berwick, was the illegitimate issue of that union. There's a lot of names there, but the upshot of all that is that Berwick was the son of King James II and Arabella Churchill. So what you might ask, is he doing fighting for the French? Well, he was raised in France, but came to England as a man, and was made Governor of Portsmouth by his father, then King of England. However, in 1688, William of Orange, by invitation, invaded England and claimed the throne for himself and his wife Mary. James fled to France, and many of those loyal to James went with him, including Berwick. Berwick in France distinguished himself many times in battle, and rose to the height of Marshal in 1706. Now, here's an interesting switch around, as the leader of the Allied forces was a Frenchman. Galway had been a significant figure in the court of Louis Fourteenth, and had distinguished himself as a soldier, as Henry de Massieux. As a French Protestant, or Huguenot, he had been allowed to practice his religion in France due to the Edict of Nantes. But Louis's revocation of the Edict of Nantes in 1685 forced him into exile with his fellow Huguenot. Only a few years later, he entered the service of William of Orange, and find himself now fighting his fellow countrymen. So that's how we got this extraordinary situation of an Englishman leading a Franco-Spanish army, and a Frenchman leading an Anglo, Dutch, Portuguese and Huguenot army. The Duke of Berwick was victorious at Almanza, Galway got away as many troops as possible and dispersed them through the Allied-held fortresses in Spain. This meant there was now no effective Allied field army in Spain. Berwick made a number of gains this year, but not as many as he might do, due to quite a large number of troops being withdrawn later in the year to bolster the defence of Toulon. So, there's disaster for the Allies in Spain and soon yet more bad news was to arrive from Germany. Prince Louis, the Margrave of Baden, had invested huge amounts of time and money on the defensive lines of Stolhofen. Prince Louis died in 1706, and his position as Field Marshal of the Rhine armies was taken over by the Margrave of Bayreuth. This was not one of the best appointments which have ever been made. He already resigned this command, several years earlier, as he felt he wasn't up to it. He neglected the lines of Stolhofen and had dispersed his army into far-flung garrisons, so when the French Marshal Villa 
breached those lines in a surprise attack in 1707, there was no field army available to confront them. The French ran rampant, amassing large amounts of loot for some considerable time before a field army could be brought to curtail their activities. By that time, the area had been thoroughly ravaged, and the lines of Stolhofen were virtually useless. In the Low Countries, things were not going much better. Vendôme faced Marlborough with an army of a 100,000 to Marlborough's 80,000. The Dutch had given strict instructions that he must not attack unless the situation was very advantageous indeed. A general as good as Vendôme was not likely to provide such an opportunity. Despite all the bad news, though, Marlborough was still confident that this would be a successful year. The capture of Toulon would be a masterstroke, which would eclipse all else and put France in a very difficult position indeed. Toulon would give the maritime powers a fine port in the south of France, through which their great fleets could funnel men and supplies. It would provide a rallying point for the French Huguenot Protestants, so persuading them to rise up against their Catholic king. Or possibly it might persuade Louis Fourteenth to make a peace which satisfied all the Allied demands. Unfortunately, the Austrians were not so convinced of these benefits. They would have been suspicious of the sea powers, suspecting that they wanted this seaport for their own purposes, and they felt it didn't benefit the empire overmuch. Much more to their benefit, they felt, would be an attack in South Italy upon Naples. They refused to have anything to do with this project, until Marlborough threatened, politely of course, to deprive them of the German troops in the pay of the maritime powers. This, I feel, was a mistake. Much as it may have been technically the right thing to do, it is a given that people only really give of their best when you win over hearts and minds. In this case, it seems the great generals of the empire, including Prince Eugene, were not wholly committed to the enterprise and don't seem to have given of their best. Despite these difficulties, the project was pushed through, and Prince Eugene and Victor Amadeus, Duke of Savoy, crossed the Alps at the beginning of July with 35,000 men, making their way along the coast towards Toulon. They were shadowed by the Allied fleet, which was led by the wonderfully named Sir Cloudsley Shovel. The army was fed and supplied from the sea, which was fortunate, as the country they passed through was extremely hostile to the armies of the Empire, and supplies on land were difficult to find. The French army were widely dispersed, but Marshal Tess guessed correctly their objective, and immediately poured all of his efforts into rounding up as many troops as possible, and dispatching them quickly to Toulon. He rushed himself to Toulon, and set about building a series of earthworks, and pulling all the ship's cannon ashore to bolster the defence of the city. Meanwhile, the Allied army continued their slow, tortuous path along the coast, moving unenthusiastically toward their goal. By the time they arrived, the city was much better defended than they expected, and 20,000 French troops were inside, determined to resist the siege. The Allied commanders held council. Prince Eugène declared the situation hopeless. The French were ready for them, 
and would undoubtedly put another army in the field, which would cut off their retreat back to Italy. Sir Cloudsley's shovel would have no truck with this attitude, and insisted upon pressing home the attack, and assuring them that if they should be cut off, his ships would carry away the foot soldiers, and the cavalry could simply ride away to safety. Victor Amadeus, the Duke of Savoy, was also keen to attack, and so reluctantly Prince Eugène agreed to do so. He would not agree, though, to the immediate storming of the as yet unfinished earthworks, and insisted that lines should be dug and a steadier, more formal siege should take place. A combination of the presence of these earthworks, the small number of the besieging force, and a fairly strong defensive force, meant that the Allies could not properly invest the town, so at no point was Toulon cut off from help. As regular listeners will know, a proper formal siege involves digging lines of circumvallation and contravallation so as to completely enclose the town under siege. As a result of this inability to cut off Toulon, throughout the siege more and more reinforcements arrived in Toulon, until such time as the Allies no longer held a numerical superiority. With the intelligence that Marshal Berwick would be arriving shortly with the French army from Spain, the decision was made to lift the siege and retreat back to Italy. This great expedition, which had involved so much effort, caused so many arguments, and cost so much in the way of lives and money, all came to naught. This is part of the letter of report, which Prince Eugène wrote to Marlborough on August the 20th, 1707. The siege of Toulon is every day more and more impossible, on account of the enemy's force and situation and the strength of their artillery. By the enclosed plan, your highness will see their camp flanked on the right by the town, with more than 130 pieces of artillery, exclusive of the fire from the two ships moved into the harbour, and on the left covered by inaccessible rocks, while the cannon shot out of the place reaches even to the mountains. They had originally forty battalions and a regiment of dragoons. They have since been reinforced by seventy-two or seventy-three battalions and about forty squadrons, which threaten our flanks under Madavi. I know not from whence troops of all quarters daily join them. The contrary winds prevent our receiving any intelligence from the fleet and hinder the galliots and boats from advancing, although they have only a hundred paces to traverse and although since the capture of Fort Louis they might have bombarded the harbour and town without risk. For three days we have bombarded the town by land with a few mortars. Marshal Tess declares that the Duke of Berwick will be here tomorrow, and that by the 24th their force will be increased to 164 battalions, and a considerable corps of cavalry. It is certain that a regiment of foot is marching from Roussillon, under Monsieur Darain. We are embarking the sick and wounded and artillery, that we may march without encumbrance. Madavi threatens to occupy the posts in our rear, but I believe he will think twice before he risks an action. I have today concerted measures with the Admiral, and we have agreed to finish our arrangements at the bar. As you can tell, Prince Eugene is far from happy at the way things have gone, and seems to make it clear he thought the whole project useless from the time he arrived at Toulon. The Prince of Hesse disagrees with Prince Eugène about the number of troops in Toulon when they arrived. The Prince of Hesse says there were only actually 20 squadrons there, 
So, Toulon was a failure, and as if to underline this disaster, as Sir Cloudsley Shovel and several other navy ships made their way back to England, they struck rocks just off the Scilly Isles, only a few miles away from reaching port. Two thousand sailors lost their lives that night, and amongst them Sir Cloudsley Shovel himself. It was one of the greatest English naval disasters ever. And when you hear the stories of the search for a solution to the problem of longitude, this is the disaster they always point to. This is the one they say, that must never happen again. A sad end for a much revered admiral. And in the Low Countries, there was little for the Allies to celebrate. We had more manoeuvring as both armies angled for an advantage. The Dutch deputies had decreed there should be no battle, unless there was a very significant advantage indeed. And Vendôme had very similar instructions from the French king, Louis XIV. For a moment, it looked like there might be an opportunity, when troops were withdrawn from Vendôme to defend Toulon. And Marlborough moved into position, but Vendôme withdrew. It was touch and go, but Vendôme just managed to get his army away. By the end of the season, the two armies were more or less in the same position they had been right at the start. In conclusion, 1707 was a year of disappointment and disaster for the Allies. The French had excelled themselves in their vigorous defence of Toulon in the south of France, their dismantling of the lines of Stolhofen in Germany, and their dazzling victory at Almanza. A rapid turnaround indeed from the previous year where they had fared so badly. So, what will 1708 have in store? We'll see you next time, here on History Zine. Bye for now.